Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Who goes to heaven? This is one of the more important questions in many ways, or at least one of the most prominent questions out of this series that I get asked. For a parent who is interested in the well-being of their children, or interested in baptism, or hoping to save their children, whatever it might be, to someone who is in the hospital or prison or nursing home, pondering the last moments of their life and wondering, will God have mercy on me? Will he save me? What do I have to look forward to? All of these ideas underlie this question in a more practical way, which is why this question is so important in a practical sense. Who does go to heaven? Now, there's a lot of nuances and tricky parts to this question that I'll address later on as we explore this question, such as, how great is God's mercy? Will all people be saved? Or questions such as, If God is so loving, why aren't all people saved? These are important questions to discuss as we venture further and further into this question. But we need a starting point. Where do we start? The first starting point is heaven. What is heaven? What do we mean by heaven? What is it like? In our modern media, we have a concept of heaven that looks like something like a giant cloud or a cloudy space where it's full of light and wonder and we just sit there in the presence of God strumming our harps with our wings attached to us flying around aimlessly. We have this image of heaven like that and honestly, in my opinion, if heaven were like that, I would find it super boring. Why would I want to strum my harp all day? Why do I care whether I can fly around in the sky? Truly, this is boring. Now, the problem with discussing something like heaven is that we don't know a lot. Heaven is a reality so far beyond us that it's hard for us to grasp its concept and to really cultivate a good sense of what that would be like. From the most important starting point, what heaven is, is its perfect union with God. It is the state of the soul in which it is perfectly united with God. That is heaven. What that means is a totally new question. So in that situation, it means that someone has been so freed from sin and all the temptations of life, so grafted onto Christ, that their only focus, all of their life, is directed to the worship and glory of God. That's it. That is the core of heaven. Someone who is so grafted into God that they are fully united with Him in every way. In this context... Heaven is no longer a place, as though it's a physical reality, in which if we could fly far enough out into the galaxy, we'd eventually find heaven, and we could all just storm its gates and enter by force? No, heaven is not a place in that context. Heaven is a state of the soul. Yet, whenever we talk about heaven, we always talk about it in the context of a place, somewhere you go. And what complicates this question even further is, We know that when we are in heaven, we will have a body, for Jesus had a body, which if it has a, if we have a body, then it occupies a space. If it occupies a space, that means it has 
dimensions. It's a place. Well, this is where things get complicated. And some people theorize that the heaven is like the fifth dimension, in that it exists in a way we don't understand, which there's some validity to that. We don't understand the difficulties of heaven. We don't understand what heaven looks like. We barely grasp what heaven is. And yet we try to make these ideas around what heaven would be like. The most important point as we ponder the the implications of heaven and what heaven might be is that heaven is the state of the soul in which the person is perfectly united to God. They have a body and they are in the bliss of this timeless, spaceless place that is where God dwells. That is heaven. So as long as we keep this context that heaven is the state of the soul and heaven is a place where God dwells, the rest of it will make more sense. In contrast to heaven, we have hell. I'm taking one slight tangent just to show the contrast, and then it'll come up a little bit more later, but really I want to focus on heaven. Hell is the state of the soul in which the person has utterly rejected God. They live in an eternal state in which God is pouring out their love upon them, but they have chosen to reject it, which gives that fiery mentality, like the fire of love burning at them all the time. The analogy I use to describe hell is it's as if there's someone I absolutely hate, do not want to be around, and have utterly rejected them, but they are so enamored, so in love with me, they cannot leave my side and cannot ever stop loving me to the point where it becomes irritating and annoying and painful. That's how I describe hell. I use this only as a contrast to heaven, and now I want to go further into this question. Justice, judgment, and mercy. These three concepts are incredibly important to understanding who goes to heaven and why they're in heaven. The first point is that God is just. Yes, God is just. When he makes a judgment, it is just. In our legal system, to kind of give us an analogy, when we hear the, the trial for a crime, when we hear this, in, this event that's happened, and we recognize that we need some sort of retribution or some sort of um, punishment due to the crime that was done, we hear the case and try to make a just decision. What is the punishment that is due that crime? The same concept works for God. The only difference is we don't know all the information, so we don't know what's just. God, however, knows all the information and knows what it takes to right the wrong to bring the healing that is necessary, to let everything be restored. So in the context of this, it means that God's justice is based on the crimes or sins that we have committed. It is based on our own inaction and inability to do what is right and just, and therefore is due a punishment. The second part of this is very similar to it, so I'm going to bring them together and then nuance it, and that is judgment. Once something unjust has been done and it needs to be righted, a punishment needs to be made so that things can be brought to healing and be brought to its fullness, a judgment needs to be proclaimed. The image we have for this is that it's God the judge who stands behind this desk with a gavel and says, heaven, hell, whatever it might be, this is your punishment. This is the sense we have of God and judgment, that he gives this judgment based on what's going on and his judgment is final which it is. The judgment and the justice of God are all based on the same basic core element, and that is sin. 
Sins are those particular things that distract us from God's laws or take us away from God's laws or are direct violations to God's laws. Now, we may think that, okay, God has these laws. Great. Why are they so just? Well, let's look at the laws for a moment and take a little bit of a tangent. So, all of God's laws are meant and designed for us to be most fully who we are meant to be. His laws and His ways are meant so that we can fully engage ourselves as humans, do what's right, feel good about ourselves, and be cultivated in this goodness. That's the point of His laws. His laws were meant for us, for us to be just, for us to build a society that would do what is right, for us to feel confident in what we are doing and can go forward as people who know what brings good relationships. It's really that simple. And so in this context, we have a couple things that we have to play with. And the first one is this. If God gave us laws that would give us a perfect society, laws that would be just and help us in our relationships, does the punishment that is done to it, is it caused by God or by the act itself? And the answer is yes. On one level, God does punish us. But the punishment is really a reaction or the action that goes with the crime that was committed. For instance, if I lie to a friend and the friend distrusts me, it's not that God said, ah, you are not trustworthy, therefore my punishment is you will not be trusted by your friend. No, it goes logically with the trust. When When I chose to lie to my friend, he reacts by not trusting me. That's how that works. Same with murder. If I murdered someone, I broke the relationship between them and their family and I've caused harm. That harm filters out into the rest of the society and leads to the issues that I face. That's just how it works. Now, the, the difference between us knowing how the punishment is concocted or how it's dealt with in society and how God sees it are two different things. We will ultimately see only part of the effects of our sins, crimes, whatever that might be. We see a small aspect of them. God sees the totality of it. He sees all the harmed relationships, all the effects of these things. He notices what it takes for us to right these wrongs, to really rise above them and restore everything. Because ultimately, what we're striving for more than anything else, what the justice system strives for more than anything else, is that the punishment is makes up for the crime that we can bring healing and restoration, that we can rebuild what was broken. That is the goal. And that is what God wants too. For everything needs to be restored so it can be in heaven, that place where there is no sin, that place where everyone is free, that place where we live in right relationships once again. So in order for heaven to exist, in order for all this to make sense, God must be just and his judgment must be just. Otherwise, we're just kind of getting a free pass. And that's really the next big point, and that is mercy. Mercy is one of the most important elements of God. And as it says in Scripture, God's mercy triumphs over his justice. Whoa, that's quite a statement to make. That means mercy can overlook everything else that's going on. Or can it? So, even with God's mercy... We have to remember that his justice and judgment are still there. There's still something that goes with it. But God so loves us, 
loves us so deeply, He created us in love. He formed us in love. Love is the core of who God is, and our very existence is built on the fact that God wants to love us and loves us fully. Therefore, understanding God's mercy is really a reflection of God's great love for us. That as He loves us and loves us fully, He also loves us into good things. His mercy is a recognition that we cannot make up for our crimes. We fail to follow His laws. We are not good at following His ways. And we have never been very good at that. Look at the book of Genesis as a good starting point. Adam and Eve were given one command. They had one law to follow. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the one thing they did? They ate the fruit of the, no- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then it started a whole saga. And from that point until Exodus 15, there are no more laws. God does not give any laws, but in each of these situations, he is t- teaching people his ways and helping them to follow him. And he is recognizing the evil in our hearts and the difficulties we have in following his laws. And he continues to have compassion. Then by Exodus 15 and to the end of Deuteronomy, he continues to enact more and more laws to help govern the people and to shape their hearts that they may follow his ways more fully, may know of them, and therefore know of his love and mercy. That is the core. So to put these three together for a moment, justice, judgment, and mercy, God's mercy is his reaction to our, is his love for us. That comes out of the need for the crimes that we've committed to be righted. And he loves us with that kind of love. Now, to recognize how important this is, this is the whole reason why Jesus came. Jesus came because God saw that we would not be able to right our wrongs and that there's no way we could make up the punishment that is due for our crimes. They are so massive, we could never, ever do enough to make up all of the healing that needs to be done. But God can. And so Jesus came through his passion, death, and resurrection, freed us from all that punishment so that we would be right before God. He would take the brunt of that pain and suffering and therefore give us an avenue to reach God's mercy and to be fulfilled, healed, restored, brought back into the life of God. It is through him that all this makes sense. I'm going to come back to this point in a moment when we bring everything back together and to really answer this question. But I want to take a moment to talk about one more key concept that goes with who goes to heaven. And this, these concepts, there's two of them, are forgiveness and free will. A moment ago, I already talked about the level of forgiveness that Jesus has brought. This level of forgiveness is essential for understanding who goes to heaven. For ultimately, if we're going to be in heaven, this place of wonderful bliss where there is no sin, there is no punishment, there is none of this negativity we experience in this life, it needs to be forgiven. All these things that were problematic need to be forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He brought the forgiveness we need. He got us an avenue that we can experience and attain that forgiveness that we need. And that's why that's so important. The second point, and probably the most complicated, if not controversial, these points, is free will. Free will is essential for this entire question. Free will is the ability to make a moral choice. Not just choosing in general, 
Because choosing in general is based on our passions. That's the, oh, I want the chocolate cake, therefore I take it. Or I'm hungry now, so I'm going to eat. Or I'm thirsty, therefore I'm going to drink. Turning that into a moral decision is a little bit different. So when I see the chocolate cake and I say, oh, I shouldn't eat that right now, it's not good for me, I have made a judgment about the cake. The cake is not good for me, therefore I should not eat it. By making that kind of judgment, we're making a moral claim on the cake too. I ought to eat it or I ought not to eat it. That is within our power. What is right to do? Free will gives us not only the power to choose, but also does two more things for us. The power to choose comes with it the responsibility of choosing rightly. Because if we do not choose rightly, we are God is just in giving us a punishment. That since we have gone against what is right, we deserve the consequences of not following what is right. Similarly, if I do what is right, I am lauded for doing what is right. I have done what is right and true, and therefore I deserve the praise or the good things that come with it. Those are the two sides of free will. I now deserve a certain punishment or praise depending on what actions that I choose. The more important element of free will is that love necessitates free will. Yes, love necessitates free will. Love is desire to give myself to another person. It's the desire for the good of another person. I cannot give myself if I'm not free to give myself. Neither am I free to give myself if I cannot give myself for the sake of another. Therefore, in order for there to be love, there must be free will. And in order for us to love God, He must give us free will in order for us to freely choose Him, desire Him, want Him, grow in love for Him. Both free will and love are necessary for understanding who goes to heaven. And now I want to take a moment to start to address this question. But I don't want to do it directly. I have a different way that I want to address the question of who goes to heaven. If you've ever read the book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, you'll see what I'm doing. In the book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has all these stories of people who experience what it's like to make that choice to go into heaven or not. And I'm going to use the same tactic for us to understand to understand God and what it means to go into heaven. So let's start out with our first story. I'm going to put some names in here just for the fun of it. If this is your name, that does not mean anything about you. Jill dies and comes before the judgment seat of God. All her life, she has tried to do what is right and to follow God's law. Ultimately, she failed to do it perfectly and has caused many problems through her inability to perfectly follow God's laws. God shows her everything she has done. What is her response? Feeling the weight of the guilt as she examines her life all at once, she turns away, feeling that she could never be forgiven. Jesus has already forgiven everything she has done, but she is left to make the choice. She chooses that she is unworthy of heaven and therefore declines the invitation to heaven. There are several elements of this story that I need to pull out to explain how this particular situation works. So, Jill is this woman who knows who God is and tries to do her best. When she gets up to heaven, she knows who God is. She sees him face to face. She gets it. She should have been cultivated in a good sense that Jesus will forgive her. For whatever reason, she decides that's not the case. And if you think this is rather harsh, 
I want to remind you that Jesus said it himself. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, meaning whoever believes they cannot be forgiven, cannot enter heaven. It's that simple. The ability and the willingness to accept forgiveness is essential for making it to heaven. And here, Jill has chosen that she is unworthy, cannot be forgiven, and therefore cannot be in heaven. She made the free choice. The choice was always hers. She could always, at any point, accept God's forgiveness. She could, at any point, recognize her need for God. She could, at any point, turn to Him and ask for forgiveness. But she didn't. She turned inward and saw that she was not worthy and therefore could not make it. Because of that choice, she decided to leave, reject God's forgiveness, and live in this state of guilt for the rest of eternity. It has such a somber tone for it. Wait till we start to pull things together in a moment. Story 2. Jake dies and comes to the judgment throne of God. Never having believed in, uh, believed in God in his entire life, he has no idea what is going on. He tried to live a good life and do what he felt was right, and, like everyone else, has failed to do it well. God shows him his entire life, and he feels great remorse for what he has done, but feels no way to be forgiven and leaves. Jake's situation is much like Jill's. They are very, very similar. In both situations, this person, these people, were brought before God, shown what they had done, and then could respond in any way they wanted. They both chose against God's forgiveness. Jake, in contrast to Jill, didn't really know who God is, didn't understand his ways, didn't know what to do with that. And that is part of the difficulty of Jake, that unlike Jill, who knew it, he didn't. Is it just for God to condemn a man who did not know his ways at all? We'll come back to that point. Story 3. Tyler dies having led a good Christian life and comes before God who again shows him everything he has done. Knowing of Jesus' forgiveness and the reconciliation he brought, he asks for forgiveness. It is granted. He then asks what he can do to make up for the problems he has caused. God allows him to be punished for a little while to make restitution for these crimes, then brings him again before his judgment throne. Having already made the choice to follow God, he is asked, Why should I let you in? Tyler responds, Because I love you and you have saved me. Recognizing in Tyler's intention, God sees his desire for him and thus lets him in. For Tyler, heaven will be a place of encounter with the God he has come to know. Notice a few differences between Tyler, Jill, and Jake. Tyler asks what he can do to be forgiven. He is given the opportunity to make up for some of his crimes. That is not outside the norm, but that he is always allowed that, re that ability to try and do something on his behalf. Ty uh, Jesus has already forgiven all of it, but he wants to have his part. The other part I want to point out is his response. Because I love you and you have saved me. He recognizes what God has done for him and he is thankful for God's great mercy. That is the core element of Tyler's response in contrast to Jake and Jill. Let's go to story four before we kind of bring everything together. Miranda lies dying in a hospital. With all this extra time to reflect on her life, many poor decisions and harmful events surface in her reflections. 
Deeply distressed by these events in her life, she turns to God for the first time and asks for forgiveness. She dies and is brought before God. God shows her her entire life and she responds by wanting forgiveness. It is granted. Out of gratitude for the forgiveness she has felt, she asks to be with God. It is granted. After some time of purification and preparation, she is brought into heaven. Miranda, unlike two of our other candidates, didn't know God for most of her life. Here she is, dying, and she encounters God in a very profound way that changed her. Because she encountered God, she knew Him slightly, enough to be able to say yes to His forgiveness and yes to wanting to be with Him. All this was part of it. Miranda's story shows one of the great contrasts or problems that a lot of people have with Christianity. Why is it just that God could, at the last moment, when someone repents, allow them to go to heaven? They didn't know Him. They didn't live a good life. They just repented the last moment. What's up with that? How can that be accepted? The reason is we have to remember God's mercy. God's mercy is so great that He wants everyone to be with Him. He absolutely wants everyone to be with Him. And even if they repent at the last moment, even if they've done horrible things all their life long, but they are truly sorry, God recognizes that. But there's a catch to it. We'll discuss this more in a few weeks when we talk about purgatory, but for now, the main point we have to remember is God's justice is not mitigated or removed because of His mercy. This person still has to do something to make up their crimes. Healing still has to be done. Otherwise, heaven is not a good experience. It's a recognition that the person has been healed and forgiven, but they have no response to that. Their only response is to praise God. It's not to actually bring healing. There's still some level of pain and hurt that needs to be overcome for the person to really experience the great joys of heaven. This is the importance of purgatory, a time of preparation, a time of purification, that all may be healed and restored and people may experience the greatest joys of heaven. That's why, even though Miranda repented at the last moment, she is not quite ready. She needs that time of purification. So who goes to heaven? That is complicated. The main core elements of the people who go to heaven are these. It is someone who is grafted onto Christ, has taken on his identity to some extent. We could call it baptism or uh, confession, depending on how you want to call it in that the person has been brought into the life of God through Jesus. We cannot be saved except through Jesus. There's no way. He is the, the avenue that brings us into the life of God. He is the one who has saved us from all of our sins and the punishment do it and provided an avenue for us to reach heaven. It is only through Jesus that we can re attain heaven. On top of that, the person must be repentant. They must recognize the crimes they have done, wish for forgiveness, and accept God's forgiveness in order for them to go to heaven. Second of all, they need to want to love God. They want to desire to be with Him. Because God will not force someone to be in heaven against their will. He will not force someone to fall into His love against their will. That's the free choice that I was talking about a moment ago. The person must freely want to love God, must freely want to be with Him. Otherwise, God will not force them into that relationship. He will give it all he's got, but he won't force them. These are the three core elements. Being one with Jesus, seeking 
in accepting forgiveness and wanting and desiring to love God. For the last part of this particular podcast episode, I want to focus on two different aspects of this that a lot of people struggle with in different ways. The first one is, how great is God's mercy? Let me give you a sense of this. God loves us fully and completely in amazing and profound ways. Because of that, God's deepest desire is for all people to be in heaven. He desperately wants everyone to be in heaven. And he is going to try everything he can. Using the context of the book, um, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, in that particular book, each person who comes before the gates and is given the opportunity to make a choice is pleaded with, almost begged with, is given as many opportunities and situations as they can to try and encourage that person to go to heaven. This is the way I see God. It's not as though it's like, oh, you've done this many crimes? Too bad. You're out. Or, you don't really love me? Too bad. You're out. Even the person who never experienced God, even the person who strived all their life but never really got to that point, they'll be given an encounter with God in the attempt that maybe this person will change their mind. Maybe they'll repent. Now, this is a very controversial point and one that is not well documented in certain sources. So some people say that you have only this life to make the choice. The question is, what choice did you make? Did you make a choice towards good? Did you make a choice towards bad? Did you make a choice to accept Jesus? Did you accept otherwise? Generally, the consensus is the person has to accept God in this life in order for anything to happen in the life to come. We don't know much. I'm making some hypothetical things at the moment. Maybe God gives a second chance. Maybe he doesn't. The general norm is that this life is all that we got. And there's a good important reason for that. The most important reason for that is if God gave us a second chance after we die, this life is largely meaningless. By holding these two ideas in tension, that God is merciful and this life means something, it gives us a new character of understanding what this life is all about. That this life is meant for us to come to know our God come to understand him so that when we get to the point that we're standing before him, we know who he is. We get it. We get his ways. We accept his forgiveness. These aren't issues for us any longer. We know who he is. That is the point of this life in many ways, that through our free will, through experiencing all that we've done, we may choose to love him. That being said, there's a lot of avenues in this life that are meant to help us with that. In the Catholic Church, we have the seven sacraments, which are avenues of experiencing God's mercy and His ways that we may strive to know Him. We have laws that guide us to help us to know what is right and what is just and what we need to do. We have all these avenues in this life that show us what is good and what is bad. Tempts, trials, problems, situations. All these things are there to help us to understand who God is and to be guided and cultivated in His life that one day we may experience him to the fullness and choose heaven, choose God, choose his ways above our own. That is the ultimate goal. But we do struggle. There's a tension that, that is held here between this life having meaning and purpose and God's great mercy, hoping that after we die we are given another chance or hoping that God will be merciful. But if we don't know who he is, how are we supposed to accept him? 
It's like walking into a room when my friend invited me to a symposium on heart disease and I have no idea what the terminology is about. How am I supposed to engage or accept this if I have no idea what's going on? The second main issue I want to draw out comes from a book produced by Hans Urs von Balthasar, a 20th century theologian who wrote the book, or in this case, essay, Dare We Hope. The full title of the essay is Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. He makes some points that are worth addressing and are important in the context of this conversation. He said, If God is all-merciful and his plan is to save all people, if one person goes to hell, does that mean that God failed in his plan? It's an important question. Similarly, if God is all-merciful, why doesn't he just save everyone? Or conversely, what it would it be like for someone if they weren't in heaven or they were in hell? For instance, if my mom died and chose to reject God and therefore is burning in the fires of hell, if you want to use that analogy, how will that affect my, my experience of heaven? How will that ex affect my feelings towards my mother or my feelings towards God? Will I be upset? Will I be happy? Will I be joyful that God is just and he allowed this person not to be forced into heaven? He brings up some important points that are worth addressing and are complicated. The ultimate issue is, is God's mercy so great that all the rest of our life is meaningless so that he's just going to blanketly forgive everyone and we'll all be in heaven? Or is there something we have to recognize? That God's mercy is also tied to his justice. That on one level, even though my mom didn't want to be in heaven, it would be very unjust for him to force her into a loving relationship. That's terrible. And I would not be happy watching my mom suffer for all eternity because she has accepted God and forced into this relationship. It's kind of a two-edged sword. His points are worth addressing as seeing the furthest extreme of what it means that God is merciful and God desires salvation for all people. But that being said, we also have to recognize some other important key elements that in, his, in, in Balthasar's point of view, our life is kind of meaningless. Whether we accept God or reject him in this life ultimately doesn't matter if he's going to save us. Living a life of faith, if God's just going to be merciful and save everyone, is meaningless. Even doing good things is ultimately meaningless. The last point that I want to make, and one that a lot of people also struggle with, and yes, now I'm on a third point, is what about the people that never encounter God? Is God going to save them? Are they going to be given an avenue or an ex expression of him so they have a potential to be saved? Such as like if we look at a Hindu tradition or a pagan tradition or maybe someone who's atheist and that's all that's around them. This is where we do have to call on God's mercy. That God, desiring the salvation of all people, will try in whatever context he can to bring salvation. Maybe they're seeking truth. Maybe they're seeking God but didn't know what he looked like or what he was like. In the Catholic tradition, we have a term for this called baptism by desire. That's for those people who desired to be grafted onto Christ, desired baptism in what it means, but never had an, uh, an opportunity to be baptized and to live that life. This is showing the, that God is greater than our human concept. God is greater than our laws. And as God being greater than that, 
He has his ways that are firm and foundational. He does not change. But we have ways to understand him. And although we may not do it perfectly, although we may fail, he will find ways to help us understand him. So, ultimately, who goes to heaven? We don't know. We hope we all do. We hope God has mercy on us. We hope he forgives us. But we have a really hard time declaring exactly who. In the Catholic tradition, we call the saints those who are in heaven because they have shown through miracles and through their life that they are in heaven. And we have a declaration process called sanctification, beatification or or canonization that declares that these people are in heaven. Ultimately, we know several things. Those who are in heaven are those who are brought into the life of God through Christ. They have made the free choice to follow him and to be in the life of God and to love him. And they have been purified from their sins by the accepting God's forgiveness and making retribution for their sins. This is all we can really say. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 